Welcome to Language During Mealtime. Certified speech-language pathologist and children's book author Becca Eisenberg brings you creative professionals from the language learning and children's education field. With these ideas, parents can help their children with special needs improve language and reading abilities. Hi, my name is Becca Eisenberg. Welcome to my podcast, Language During Mealtime, episode number 91. Today, I'll be interviewing author, storyteller, and rabbi Sandy Eisenberg Sasso. Rabbi Sandy is the author of many books, both for adults and children. Rabbi Sandy is the first woman ordained from her seminary, Reconstructionist Rabbinical School in 1974. She was married in 1970, and her and her husband became the first rabbinical couple in world Jewish history. Rabbi Sandy is the author of Regina Persisted, which is a picture book about the first woman rabbi. Her other two books in the series are Judy Led the Way, which is a story of the first bat mitzvah 100 years ago, and Sally Opened Doors, which is a story of the first woman rabbi U.S., um, which was about 50 years ago. Rabbi Sandy also wrote a book about Anne Frank entitled Anne Frank and the Remembering Tree and God Remembered, and Noah's Wife, which are books that retell stories of women in the Bible. To learn more about Rabbi Sandy's work, which is she has many, many books, and she has a wealth of knowledge on her website, which is allaboutand.com, and that's also going to be in the post. So thank you so much for being here today, Rabbi Sandy. I'm really excited to talk to you about um, some of your books that I, I first discovered, just to say, first discovered in the... Uh, Hadassah magazine about the first woman rabbi. And I immediately bought the book because I thought it was really, really um, interesting. Sound like a really interesting story. Well, thank you. I'm very happy to be here. So the first thing I wanted to ask you about was just your background, because you have such an interesting background. And how, what was the transition from your background to becoming an author? Well, I was ordained from the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College in 1974. I was the first woman ordained from the school. And you realize that as a rabbi, you do a lot of writing. I mean, you you write sermons, you write commentary on the Torah portions, you write addresses for life cycle events, you tell stories to children. So I had always loved writing. Uh, even from the time I was in middle school, I had said, I, I think I want to be a writer. Uh, and I developed a special interest in storytelling, especially for the family services that I conducted. And when I wanted to continue my, my studies uh, it, for a doctor of ministry, I took a class on religion and children. And for one assignment, I wrote a children's story about God because the books about God that I had found did not really honor the spiritual lives of children. Uh, They preached more than told a story, and they didn't speak about a God I could believe in. So that assignment became my first children's book, God's Paintbrush. And that set me on the path of writing uh, even more, uh, particularly for children. So so just also, I want to kind of get into the series that we're going to be talking about, about your interest in writing about the first, uh, the first woman rabbi, which I think is really interesting because I think for a lot of kids, um, just learning about her story, 
which is so interesting in the struggle she went through to to become a rabbi. Um, and so I was just wondering like about that journey with beginning this this three part, I guess, three picture book series about women in Jewish history. Absolutely. So um, my writing and my teaching has always been about uplifting the voices and stories of women because so many of those voices have been silent and so many of those stories have been hidden. I was particularly fascinated by the story of Rabbi Regina Yonas. And I went with a group uh, sponsored by the American Jewish Archives actually to follow in her footsteps. Uh, We went to Berlin. uh, We went to Prague where she was interned in the Theresen concentration camp. And we discovered this incredible history. And really, it hadn't been told. I mean, there was a a book for adults about her, but uh, the younger generation had never really heard about her. And I felt I wanted to tell that story, partly because it had been submerged. The first time anyone began came aware of her story was after the Berlin Wall fell and a Protestant minister found her papers. And then people started writing about her and her experience. So she was murdered in Auschwitz, but I didn't want her story to die as well. And so I did a lot of research and I found this a fascinating story you know, about a woman who was ordained in 1935 in Berlin. Uh, who had many obstacles put in her way, uh, who served the community, who served the community in Theresen as well. Um, But after she died, people never told her story. So it was, um, felt it was in some ways, as one of the first women rabbis, my responsibility to tell that story. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a really important story because even when I, um, showed my son the book and I read it to him. He, at first he said, well, there are rabbis aren't there. All rabbis are men. And I'm like, no, they're not. Actually, this is a good reason why I have this book. Obviously I wasn't doing a good job with uh, communicating to him that rabbis could be women or men. Um, and so it's, I think important. I think it's like a timeless book. And I love that you wanted to tell her story because it's a really interesting story. Um, and just how she constantly persisted. I mean, even, even as a young girl, she wanted to be a rabbi, yep. uh, which is amazing. And despite all the obstacles, she became a rabbi. Um, and so I want to get to your other books too, about the first woman rabbi in the U.S. Um, and then also the first bat mitzvah, which I thought was also like, I just love these, these books. Thank you. So actually, there are two amazing anniversaries this year. Um, The first is about Judith Kaplan Eisenstein, who uh, 100 years ago celebrated the first bat mitzvah. And I was just uh, recently in New York to speak at that uh, event of celebration and to honor that amazing accomplishment. And it is also 50 years since Sally Presan, the first woman uh, ordained from Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, the Reform Seminary, uh, 50 years since she was ordained. So you have these two incredible anniversaries. I, uh, I first wrote about 
Judith Kaplan's story because I knew her. Um, her her husband was the president of the rabbinical college where uh, I and my husband Dennis Sasso attended. Um, her father taught a few of our classes, Mordecai Kaplan, and I, I had spent a lot of time learning from her and hearing her extraordinary pioneering work in Jewish music. And most of the story of Bat Mitzvah was told from her father's point of view. You know, he initiated, he asked her to do this, and she did it. But um, it, it wasn't just that Mordecai Kaplan invented the bat mitzvah. It was that his daughter uh, followed through with it. So my questions were, what did she think? How did she feel um, standing in front of a congregation where men and women were separated uh, in terms of their seating? Um, and, and so I tried to explore her um, attitudes, feelings, experiences as a 12-year-old child, because I thought that could be helpful to other emerging adolescents talking about doing something that no one had ever done. And then, of course, I also knew Sally Prezen. I was ordained two years after she was, and, and we have become friends. And um, I knew that um, people wanted a children's book about her. And they asked me, since I was a children's author, would I consider writing it? And I was very happy to do so. Um, and it wasn't just about what Sally Priestand accomplished, but even more so about her graciousness in opening doors for others. Um, because now there are over a thousand women rabbis. So, so imagine in 50 years, the landscape has changed tremendously. Yeah, so I, have, I was just going to add the dedication for that book, which is just coming out uh, as we speak. Um, I dedicated it for those who paved the way and for all who walk on it. And I quoted from Proverbs, her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. Um, so I was looking for um, telling a story about the beginning of something that changed uh, Judaism. And I also think it just, I mean, giving children access to this book, especially I think girls, just, I think sometimes, you know, I mean, as a, as a, also, a, I was about misfed. I never even knew the struggles um, or who paved the way for that to be about mitzvah. Right. So it's like, sometimes I think it's, you know, you kind of take things for granted that you could just become about mitzvah or you right. could just become a rabbi but not realize who actually paved the way for that to give us the ability to even have that as an opportunity and as an option. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I feel sometimes we take for granted this, where we are in terms of women's opportunities, not like there aren't still more things that need to be done, but we sort yeah. of take for granted where we are. And we really need to pay attention to how hard it was to get here because you know what? It's also easy to go back. And, and I always fear that we can go back unless we're very aware of what it took to get to where we are and how we sustain it and, and to honor the past and those people who made a path that we're walking on. 
Exactly. Exactly. And so I want to get into just because I feel like there's so many things that you've done to create history. I mean, so just to go back to um, you and your husband being the first rabbinical couple in world Jewish history. And what was that like? <laughs> well, in some ways, it's, it's not any different than any other couple coming together, falling in love and, and making a family and a home and a life together. Uh, when my husband, Dennis Sasso, and I entered the Reconstructions of Rabbinical College, we did so because um, we loved Judaism. We both wanted to be rabbis. We didn't know each other <laughs> at the time. Uh, in our first year, we discovered we not only loved Jewish learning, we also loved each other, and we wanted um, to build our lives together. We got engaged um, as we were studying verses from the book of Jeremiah, and we inscribed one of those verses in our wedding bands. Uh, it said, I have loved you with eternal love, and we continued to sign all our cards and letters to each other with those same words. Um, you know, the rabbinate is a challenging and demanding profession, and we were able together to create a home that was our sanctuary, a place of refuge. Um, it's really not just about the walls and the furnishings, but it's about the people. And for us, family was and is what continues to bless us. And that was so much an important part of our lives to each other, you know, and also you know, we understood each other and the demands of leading a congregation. And I think we were always there for each other. Um, and in some ways, we complemented each other. We, we have different gifts uh, and interests. He is more of an academic. I am more of a storyteller. Uh, we still edit each other's writings and we're one another's best critics. That is honest, but gentle. Wow. So when's the, when's the book about the two of you? <laughs> oh, I hadn't thought about that. You know, it's much easier to write about somebody else than about <laughs> So just oh, to kind of... Again, I'm sorry. We also come from different cultures, you know. Yeah. So Dennis Sasso is from Panama um, and, I, and has a Sephardic Jewish heritage. And I grew up in Philadelphia and my ancestry goes back to Russia and the Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So here we are merging two uh, different cultural traditions within Judaism. So what's been the difference of writing fiction versus nonfiction? Because you have a you know, variety of different books. So what, what, what do you tend to like better? Or, I, like yeah. both. <laughs> I like both. So I really, my uh, his, historical writing is, is partly historical fiction because it's not um, a biography. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm trying to create a character. Not every, uh, not every conversation is exactly what took place. You know, I'm putting it in the context of what is true, but I'm also trying to tell a story, not just present a series of facts. I'm trying to tell a story in which um, I feel that children can find a place um, and engage a series of questions that help them see themselves as somebody who also can do something extraordinary. Um, I love writing uh, just 
general fiction as well for kids. Um, I find that it is energizing. It makes me think in new ways about issues. I do a lot of writing on interpretive um, understandings of biblical stories. So I try to ask myself, what's missing in that story? Like, uh, who's Noah's wife and what did she do? <laughs> um, you know, exactly. uh, what happened to the first light of creation that was created before the sun and the moon? Um, I, I try to look at stories where their pieces seem to be missing and, and try to feel that, fill that out with my imagination. Uh, and I love doing that. It's so exciting. Like I just came out with a book um, called The Raven and the Dove, the Big Fish and the Stubborn Donkey, Stories of Animals from the Bible. And so I retell, you know, the story of Noah's Ark and the Raven and the Dove, the story of Jonah and the Big Fish, and a lesser known story of Balaam and, and the Stubborn Donkey. And I do it through the voices of the animals. And it was so much fun. Uh, that's that. so opened up a whole new way of understanding the story. Yeah, I think that's really great just because I think it's hard for, I mean, at least for me to explain certain stories in the Bible. You know, like my son is going through his um, studies for the for his bar mitzvah and, you know, trying to understand some of the stories. But I think interpreting them so that kids could understand them a little bit better, or maybe relate to them a little bit better. It, I think it helps a lot. So I really, I really like that because I think that takes a certain skill to really be able to kind of saying retell the story, but being able to relate it to kids and understand them better. So kids have a very um, great imagination. They're very creative. They have a deep sense of wonder. They have a rich spiritual life. And we often don't give them credit for that. Uh, and most of my stories, or I should say all of my stories, are to give children a language which with they can speak about the big issues in life and, and what's at the heart of being a human being. Uh, so I, I feel that children can have a pretty sophisticated conversation we don't have to change the concepts. We just have to change the language. So they have words with which to express, you know, what's really in their hearts. And, and sometimes we don't give them permission to do that. And that's so essential. And so just to kind of go into some of your other books about um, like for adults, mm -hmm. how do you kind of, how do you alternate between the children and the adult books or do you ever do you just think kind of think of an idea and then you start in a certain book or how does that, how does that work with you? Cause you have so many books published. Actually, how many books published do you have total? Uh, I believe it's 25. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. And how, yeah, how many of them are adult? Uh, two. I've written a lot of adult essays and chapters and books, but I, I have two books that I've written for adults. Now they're not fiction. Uh, they are more both collections of stories and, and information. Uh, so one is called Midrash, reading the Bible with question marks. So basically it's um, how I look at the Bible and I use the um, ancient Jewish tradition of 
midrash, a way of interpreting biblical texts. And I tried to uh, introduce people into that whole process and give examples from tradition that are quite compelling. So it, it's a different kind of book, you know. It, and then my other book I wrote with Penina Schramm, who's a very well-known Jewish folklorist, and is called Stories of uh, Jewish Stories of Love and Marriage. And that book all came from my the experience of my daughter getting married and I wanted to give her something uh, you know like something that came particularly from me uh, and I wanted to give her a bunch of Jewish uh, Jewish stories that she could then write her own uh, and I couldn't find them all so I I would connected with Panina Shram. And what we did is did a huge collection of stories of love and marriage, beginning with biblical and rabbinic stories, uh, including folk tales, including love letters uh, between uh, well-known Jewish personalities, uh, including contemporary love stories, uh, and uh, including a whole section on how to write love letters, an art that has been lost. Wow. That's great. a lot. That's a lost art. I feel like yeah. <laughs> so important. So when I uh, counsel couples who are getting married, I ask them, um, you know, after our first meeting, to go home and write a love letter to each other, not to share it, and come back and we meet again to read that letter to each other, um, and then to keep the letter and read it at every anniversary. Uh, I yeah. just feel. So important, you know, to put our feelings into words and not just into texts, <laughs> you know, like uh, a few char 40 character texts. You know, how, how can we explain our feelings? And it's such a touching moment. So this book um, allowed me to explore that art and also to explore other letters that I totally blew me away. I, I thought it was so extraordinary. Wow. And such a nice gift for your daughter, too. To yes, actually I, write a book for her for her for her wedding. Uh, it was fun, and when I started writing it, um, I, I mentioned to someone, and she pulled out her grandfather's love letters to her grandmother, and I read through them, and uh, I read one of them during her wedding ceremony. Uh, oh, wow. And I included them in the book. So you know, how do you lift up those stories, and how do you preserve? you know, the feeling that, you know, once brought you together uh, and how do you sustain it? So that was a totally different kind of writing than, uh, of course, than I do for kids. All right. Well, and is there anything else that you want to talk about before we finish up? Well, I do a lot of writing about God. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so, and I do that because, um, for me, uh, based on Jewish tradition, with Jewish tradition speaks of God as a mirror and everyone who looks into it sees a different face. And I wanted children to be able to look in that mirror and tell us what they see. And I don't think we have given them that opportunity. We've told them what we believe or think we believe, and they just parrot it back to us. But we really need to figure out or understand and have them express know, what is in their hearts? What do they see when they look at that mirror? So I do a lot of writing um, 
about spiritual mountains, and I do a lot of work with metaphor, uh, which allows children uh, to to be very imaginative in their conversation about these deeper matters. Yeah, I really like that. I think that's, I think a big question, at least from my perspective, about about God when you know when children ask about that. So yes. I like that how how you approach that. I think it's really uh, meaningful. And I don't know, I think that's probably, I don't know, to me, like that's something that would be like a concept that I think a lot of children would be able to grasp. It's so amazing. So some of my books, after I, I talk about God in sort of metaphoric terms. And when I asked, you know, kids, you know, what, what might be their metaphor, I've gotten the most incredible answers. So one child said, I think God is the ocean and I am the wave. Wow. Um, Another little, I mean, older child saying, I think God is my trampoline. It allows me to bounce back after I fall down. I mean, these are so much um, richer conversations about God than just picking up this sort of traditional image of some, you know, man in the sky with a beard uh, controlling our lives. I mean, none of that makes sense. No wonder kids reject it later. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can have a much broader um, conversation about um, what is most important. So it isn't like kids can come to you and say, look, I don't believe in God. And I say, oh, that's fine. But you do have to decide what you do believe in. Now let's talk about that. And that, that's what these books are about. I really like that. I think that makes, I think that makes a lot of sense. It's just... And I love that we talked about with the ocean, the wave. I think that's amazing. And the trampoline. I mean, kids have the best imagination. I, I do find when you ask kids questions, they're, the, the way that they respond is just in, in so many ways so different than we think. Because I think as you get older, you kind of have like a set thought on certain things. And it's hard to be as flexible or have as much imagination as kids have. And I I know that's probably one of the things you probably love about children's books is that you could still have that imagination. So it's very interesting. There was a recent study by NASA about uh, creativity and it indicated that very young children up till five had 90% have marked as creative genius. Five years later, that reduced by the time they were adults, only 2% recorded as a creative genius. So the children have this inherent creativity and we need to encourage and actually learn from it. I mean, when I have conversations with kids, I learn things about the world that um, I didn't know before particularly because they have this deep sense of connectedness and this wonderful sense of wonder. Uh, And that's why I love, you know, telling stories for kids. Perhaps the most important thing, you know, for your listeners, when when you read stories with kids, just be cautious not to tell them what you think the story means. Leave it open, because what you need to do is let the child tell you what the story means to them. It could be something totally different uh, than what you thought to begin with. Yeah, that's totally true. Because I think sometimes we want kids to understand. So we try to, I think as a speech pathologist, I do that a lot. Because as I'm reading, I'm telling kids what it's about just to like improve the comprehension. But on the other hand, you're kind of taking away their 
kind of imagination a little bit to what it could be. It could be something completely different than what you were saying. And that happens a lot. I think with the kids that I work with, I'll ask them a question and they could think of a completely different response than anything that I had thought of, which is what I love about it. So I think also, you know, that's a good point for, you know, for parents, for teachers, for, you know, therapists, like just to kind of think more about giving kids the open space to kind of imagine what they, what they, how they interpret the book. Right. Everybody has a different relationship to a story. Yeah. Don't curtail that conversation. Leave it open so you can hear what the other has to say about the story. It, it's quite incredible. And you know, it's our tendency to say, let me tell you what this means. No, we're only right. saying what it means to yeah. us. <laughs> um, yeah. I could totally say, and you being a storyteller, I also think that that is another really amazing skill because it's not everybody that could tell a really good story. Well, I worked on it for a really (laughs) long time. I used to listen to storytellers. You'll know how long ago I bought cassettes and records (laughs) and listened to the stories. I went to a storytelling conference. Um, I don't I mean, I don't know if I'm a professional storyteller. I don't know. I would get up and tell 10 stories at a time. But I've learned a lot from the art of storytelling. And um, it has really enriched uh, me and also has impacted my writing. Well, I I think that they're complementary to each other. Because if you could verbally be a storyteller, then that should be able. it It is different. Verbal versus written. But the fact that you have both is well, pretty amazing. When I write a story, I also have to read it out loud because these stories will be read out loud, you know, to children or by children. And it ought to have a certain rhythm to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very different than adult writing, which is not going to, for the most part, be read aloud unless it's poetry. But um, it, the children's books are so how it sounds, the rhythm, how it moves uh, is so important. Yeah, no, I agree with you with that because there has been times where I've written children's books and until we really read it aloud, we realized that there was something in the story that didn't really make sense, that seemed a little bit off. So I think for anyone writing stories out there, just making sure that you know you have a lot of practice with reading it out loud to other kids. Um, and so all different kids, not just your own kids, because I think sometimes just reading it to your own kids versus reading it to other kids and seeing what other kids think about it. So. Yeah, children's stories are, are, are just incredible. It's a great, uh, I feel very lucky to have sort of discovered uh, this ability to share stories with kids. It, it's really enriched my life in so many ways. And I was going to add that uh, children's books are really also for adults. Exactly. Uh, it, they tell the kinds of stories that, um, that help adults make sense of things as well. And they do it in a short way. So, uh, you know, you can encapsulate a, a whole theology and philosophy in a children's book that may take, you know, a book of 500 pages to explain. So how do you get to the very essence of the issue that you want to communicate? I love children's books. They really, you know, surprise you and and get you to think deeply about an issue. And I learn a lot from children's books. I mean, you know, I didn't know when, until reading your book, I didn't know a lot about the first, the first woman rabbi. 
So that's what I always say. Like when I'm reading books, um, you know, to my kids or I love, well, I love children's books. I mean, I just read them all the time. That's why I always say, you know, you're never too old for picture books because I think picture books could be so rich in language um, and rich in information. And especially I have, I, I have a real thing for nonfiction picture books, which is why I like your books so much. <laughs> I love them because it's not easy to, no. you know, especially like, you know, somebody who has been through so much, how could you present a story that is challenging, um, but also uplifting, but in a way that kids could really understand? Um, and I, that's really hard. It's not easy writing nonfiction picture books because you're limited with your language. You know, you can't have like tons and tons and tons of text on the pages. And also the marriage between the illustration and representing that to, to the kids is also really important. The illustrations are essential in some ways. Uh, they tell another story. They, they mm-hmm. deepen the story. And uh, so I'm very grateful for, for my illustrators. They really help enrich the story in, in so many ways. And, you know, when you're writing uh, children's books uh, that are nonfiction, uh, you're not just giving information. You're, you're, you're creating a character, a three-dimensional character, and uh, with whom you're creating some empathy uh, the reader should have some empathy and um, connect to the challenges that the individual is going through. So it, it's a different experience than just writing for history. Not that a history book isn't important, but with children, you're getting one little slice of that person's life uh, that helps you want to even learn more and know that person. Exactly. And just kind of going back to adults learning, a lot of times when, you know, for for adults, they're like, oh, I don't have enough time or I don't have this. But when you're reading a book to your child, it's a great experience for both of you no, to learn not. together. Mm-hmm. Uh, kids really want uh, to be told stories and they also want to talk, discuss them with their significant others. Uh, And often at the end of my books, I ask a series of questions to encourage a further conversation. Yeah. And there's just so many there's, and this is also talk about repeated readings. I talk about that a lot because some people think that if you read a book once then that's, that's it. And you don't have to read it again, but um, especially a nonfiction picture book could Mm -hmm. be read a lot of times because there's so many different aspects to it. Um, that you could talk about. So it could be read many times. Um, yeah, kids love something they're familiar with. So if they really like a story, they will ask you, would you tell me that story again? Uh, and also in writing children's book, I think it's really important to have a sense of humor. So as serious as my books are, I try to uh, have a sense of humor in writing them. Uh, and that, that's really important to me as well. Uh, so there's some, I have one or two picture books, like my grandchild, who's now beyond picture book age, but still interested. Read me that story again. It's so funny. I love to, <laughs> to repeat it. So um, that's really essential. And that is a great blessing to authors to know when a children like really loves your story and enjoys it so much. Oh, yeah. No, I totally, totally understand that. 
You know, it's a gift. I think it's a gift to be able to, you know, write a story that that people love. But I think, you know, especially with your stories, you know, you're passing on um, a legacy. You know what I mean? Like just with these stories, like just to make sure that the story doesn't die, especially with the first woman rabbi. She's not here anymore, but you're still continuing to tell her story. So a hundred years from now, people could still learn about her story. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. So it's really important because if it's not written down, you know, when it's not passed down from generation to generation, you lose, you know, you maybe lose that person and what they did unless it's written down. We almost lost the story of Regina Jonas. Uh, I'm so grateful that um, others brought forth her story and that I was able to tell it for kids. And there are many stories out there that haven't been told. And so hopefully there are your listeners will begin to tell this story. Everybody has a story. Um, And we all need to feel that we can tell it. Uh, And even if it's not going to be a book, it's still important. It's very important. Exactly. Tell it to your kids. Tell it to the next generation. um, Tell your family story and get kids to begin to tell their family story, how they see it. Exactly. I was just talking to my son about that recently. Um, We were away and we hadn't seen certain family members in a very long time. And I thought, you know what? There's so many questions he had about, you know, where our family was from and about his great grandparents that I wasn't able to answer. And so, you know, we made that visit to that person and he was able to tell stories about his grandparents, um, which are, I guess, my, I don't know, I'm how are really great grandparents. Um, but anyway, like just to tell the stories and he just loved it. He really enjoyed it. And there were stories that I didn't even know that I hadn't asked because it had been so long. So I think, you know, just to hear the stories and then be able to pass that on is, is really important. Yeah. You belong in a long chain of tradition of stories and it helps you understand who you are when you hear those stories and they become part of you. Uh, And, you know, I say I regret now that I didn't ask my grandparents certain questions. Yeah. So I tell people, ask all the questions, get those stories before they're gone. I know. I wish I did that for my grandmother and I, I didn't, you know, and so it's been really hard to try to figure out, you know, family history beyond, you know, with her parents and, you know, with, with my mother or not, you know, she passed away. So it's been hard to find that, um, those stories. So I agree, you know, asking, getting, getting that information down when you can, so that you can continue to pass it down. So, well, thank you so much for today. It was a really interesting conversation. I love your work and I'm excited to, you know, get your next book, which is Sally Open Doors. So, and I'm sure you're going to have a lot more books come in because you have a lot of stories to tell. (laughs) So I have one in the works right now on Psalm 23, Um, but it'll be a while. (laughs) Wow. Well, I think you're the kind of person who always has a project going on. Well, you never know, but I'm grateful (laughs) for those projects, I must say. And I I appreciate our conversation. Uh, Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening today. Listen and learn with us at Language During Mealtime. 